Hi, I'm James. And I'm Drew. And welcome to Graphic Support Group, a mindful podcast for the design industry and the self, where empathy and the creative cloud meet. Join us as we delve into the mind and soul of graphic design, from PSDs to PTSD. This is Graphic Support Group. Drew. Uh, and we're here for another awesome episode of Graphic Support Group. Uh, we're really excited to have our guest here today, uh, Mindy Sue. Um, we've we've kind of gone back and forth and she's battled COVID, but now she's here to uh, talk with us. So welcome, Mindy. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Yes, I've I hope I'm fully recovered, now have my taste and smell back, but excited to talk to both of you. Yeah, yeah thanks for coming on. We've, uh, we were very prepared like a month ago, and <laughs> hopefully we are prepared a month later. This is yeah, just going to be like group therapy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. We're going to use, we all, we, both James and I decided tonight we need some therapy, so yeah. if you don't mind. Uh, yeah helping us help you, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll um, do my best. <laughs> um, so for our guest, Mindy Sue is a designer, researcher, and educator. Um, she brings her diverse experience as an interactive designer to her very comprehensive research projects and conceptually driven works. Um, uh, she brings a high-level intelligence to all her projects, but also an accessibility to otherwise hard-to-access information that um, I think we think shows a great sense of generosity and preservation. Um, so we're excited to talk to her today about her motivations and also staying focused on long-term projects and you know staying the course. Um, so yeah, we're super psyched. Yeah, we uh, we start off lately with a new recurring question, which is a great uh, open-ended one, which is how has your attitude towards design been lately? Yeah, I tend to toggle with this. I feel like there are some days where I feel super optimistic about the work that we're all doing. I'm also an educator. I teach at Rutgers and at Yale. And these students are so critical and engaged. I think it definitely feeds back into the type of work that I'm doing and how I'm feeling about the state of the future. Though oftentimes I toggle to the other side where it's quite frustrating that our discipline is very much tied to capital and that especially with like social networks and online media, it's really pushed by virality. And this, I'm pretty shy online. So it's kind of a hard way to engage with with our peers. It feels quite superficial. Um, So I do go back and forth between those things. Yeah, that's actually been something that I've been thinking a lot lately, and we've kind of scratched at it with a few of our guests, but just like being stuck in that that cycle of having to be constantly self-promoting. And like, also now we're in a state where like the work is for that kind of promotion Mm -hmm. um, on many different levels. And I'm just finding that more and more problematic. Yeah, absolutely. I was talking to a friend the other day about how, they received this architecture prompt and they just wanted to make sure the renders looked good on Instagram or even like talking (laughs) to musicians, they want to make sure like the eight second bridge is good for the Spotify algorithm. So we're basically changing the way we make work. So it fits into this larger cycle. Right. Yeah. And the distribution system is like uh, obviously very tied to capital, which makes it even more, kind of frightening in some level yeah absolutely i also think it's important to not make the distinction between like client work and self-initiated work as one being capitalistic and one not because i don't Mm -hmm. actually think it's that simple i feel like a lot of these self-initiated works if they're funded through grants or nonprofits or individual donors they often get their funding or also contribute to these larger tech or industrial projects 
So it just feels like this entire state of production is very much tied to like late capitalism, as everyone's very aware of. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But actually, it's thanks interesting. for clarifying that, actually, because like I think that misconception is very like just because the direct client is a nonprofit doesn't like purify it from like its its source. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And even like the phrase nonprofit is so misleading because nonprofit means that their profits are not taxed. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the company itself is uh, more like egalitarian or ethical than something that is for profit. So I think everyone should read that that byline or footer more, more carefully. <laughs> it also just uh, kind of speaks to like the idea that all work is sort of being funneled like the work that you're doing for these nonprofits or for education purposes is also there to like kind of influence culture, which is also paid for by money. <laughs> so like Absolutely. if you're even your influence as a academic could potentially be seen in, inadvertently as capitalistic, you know, so it's, it is tricky in that respect. Like, Oh, I'm just here to like teach you know, like mm-hmm. teaching is is seen as very noble and specifically in graphic design, it's definitely the most noble, I think, of all the professions. But I guess I'd never heard it explained that way. So, I yeah, I mean, also consider um, a lot of the people who teach in graphic design are adjuncts or part time lecturers. And these courses do not pay nearly the same percentage as someone who's full time. And I'm full-time at Rutgers and I'm part-time at Yale. Um, so seeing this distinction, seeing friends who are teaching the same course load, but they're adjuncts at all these schools, but don't get the benefits, don't get the same pay grade, but ultimately teaching the same classes, these are huge problems that we're having to navigate, especially as we're then churning out these students who are going to emerge in the world in a very hard time to find a job. Um, with it also being seen as like quite criticized to take like a big tech job, for example, but many students don't really have options. So I would just like to throw in more complexity to before we cast so much judgment on these decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we wanted to also foreground the conversation with our recurring question. Um, so could you share a lasting experience from your design career that has affected you emotionally or psychologically? Yeah, I was trying to think about this, and I thought of one example that was very small, but, you know, lasting, and another that can is less pointed to a specific experience, but I've experienced multiple times. Um, so the first was when I was an undergrad, it was my first semester learning how to code. I wanted to be a book designer and just assumed that coding was not the way my brain worked. Like many people, I found it very intimidating. And my professor at the time, Casey Rees, he was helping me build this generator in processing. And I was using, I just downloaded the Sublime text editor. And he came up to me from behind and was like, wow, look at you using Sublime. And for me, this was such a validating comment because Now I know Casey to be like this very warm, supportive person, but at the time I was so intimidated and he's not the most expressive person. So getting any kind of feedback of this sort just made me feel like, oh, I actually can go into this. And like, I know the tools and I'm tackling this learning curve and it feels like there's a lot of potential for me in this space. And there wasn't a lot of representation. I feel like that's happening more and more now. but it was a very like validating and supportive comment, no matter how benign it might have felt to him or like like a throwaway comment. I guess quickly for those who are listening who aren't familiar with K-Series, he created Processing with Ben Fry, oh. um, which later became P5.js by Lauren McCarthy that many people use because it's browser-based. Got it. Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah. But James actually, funny enough, was the TA in my processing workshop at uh, RISD, and I, I was still don't know how to use it. processing. <laughs> and I kept asking him for help, and he was like, "Uh, 
And he would Absolutely. like pretend to help and then refer to Dan Schiffman's YouTube tutorials. That's yeah. what I point people to. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the second one I thought of was right after undergrad, I was often in like more classical studio environments. I was at moment in house. I was at two by four. Um, and I always felt like just the aesthetic formal things that I was creating was not as strong as those around me. And that made me feel like really insecure. But I think as I got older, I just began to recognize and accept that I'm not a formalist. And while graphic design is like a pillar in my practice, I'm much more energized by like a lot of the research and content that is then shaping the design. So mm -hmm. I think once I started to make it more holistic, then I began to feel more motivated in the projects I was working on. Um, yeah. But when it was just about like a formal critique, I always kind of felt like, man, these people are just like so energized by the aesthetic and like, why isn't that me? But I think right, just right. about recognizing what your strengths are. Yeah, that's really uh, important. Because, I mean, James and I were just talking about this because currently like I'm struggling with that at work too where it's like i just feel like i'm like trying to fit a mold that i'm not necessarily sure i fit yeah. um, mm -hmm. and i think at RISD, james and i both felt that way too about like our formal uh tendencies in the in the context of the school's formal tendencies yeah and not to speak for like you but no, it was kind of like we were both super into form and like wanting to go crazy, but it didn't feel accepted or appropriate in some contexts mm -hmm. um, in that environment. Mm -hmm. um, but I thank you for sharing, first of all. But I, I love both of your examples because they're both like uh, validation and the importance of validation and like self-acceptance. Um, mm -hmm. I love that, like that second example about working in studios. And, and we'd love to actually talk about the form of your work um, later mm -hmm. but yeah just that recognition and um validating other practices in graphic design practice like of the other parts of it i think that's a that's a really like important thing to to take yeah. into consideration yeah and even as drew was saying like i think that there's so much space to develop new models for how graphic designers work and totally. even if you don't see that in front of you, I think mix and matching different disciplines is actually such an important part of like today's generation. And it's really exciting to see other people blend like an art practice with writing, with research, with installation, with et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's one of the things that we're definitely so excited to talk to you about because yeah, it's, it, it, I think both of us are still kind of, intrigued and also like not sure how exactly to uh define the work you do and i think that is like is amazing because to be able to do work that that is not easy to define is actually like so badass and i think like you know i think both james and i um have like found our way <laughs> in, in a sense in terms of like our own insecurities and stuff. Mm. But like, there's like flare ups all the time for me. Um, so I'm curious, like how it feels to, to really ha be in your own kind of like universe of design and then like have to sort of like remind yourself that you like are charting your own course and what happens when you're like pulled into another context and you're like, I don't know what the fuck this is like. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because because of the work that I'm doing, I'm often in spaces that are not filled with designers. So it's like, depending on which silo I'm in, I'm always the person in some ways with the least amount of experience or like the least quote unquote expertise. So for example, in like a graphic designer space, I'm not the most formal or experimental or technical. In when, when I'm with writers, I mean, I have an editor, but I'm very new to writing. So that also feels like quite terrifying, even if I have some sort of collaborative support. Um, in like technology spaces, when I was at the Berkman Klein Center, these people are like lawyers and policymakers. 
making actionable changes for the way we use the internet. So all of these things, you kind of develop some sort of imposter syndrome. Um, but a friend of mine, Joanne Chung, who I believe is currently still at IDEO, tweeted once, um, to overcome imposter syndrome, you should trust in the depth of your curiosity rather than your expertise, which I find like such a good motto for how we navigate these different spaces. Because you do kind of want to surround yourself with people who know more, like that's what allows you to grow. Um, And I do, I'm pretty confident that I'm a very curious person and I want to learn more. But the expertise sign, like how, what degree defines an expert? Like that, that right. area gets quite tenuous for me. Um, so yeah, I lean on that, that quote slash tweet quite often. Yeah. Yeah, that's like that's good, really cool. That's a really powerful quote. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're definitely gonna have to, because I've I've been I've been in need of a quote like that. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. Like, you know, right now I I as I like kind of alluded to, it's like I. Yeah, when you're kind of out of your element, so to speak, and you're surrounded by people who don't necessarily see the things you see in the work, mm-hmm. you, I mean, I, I'm losing sense of myself in that process. So I've, I wonder how you can maintain that sense of self in these contexts and like how difficult or, uh, yeah, like what keeps you motivated to keep engaging with these contexts that you're not necessarily seen immediately as like the expert Hmm. i mean i kind of feel like in all of these spaces there's a certain like translation error that happens that's quite nice because you're having to explain a new syntax to these people who just speak in a different way and have like a different bank of references Mm -hmm. um so if anything it's really just people being very open-minded to your experiences as well as you wanting to learn from theirs. It feels like a very cyclical conversation. Um, I also think that it's important to recognize that imposter syndrome oftentimes is a systemic problem. Like this is placed, the weight is placed on the individual. Someone's not working hard enough. Someone's not doing enough. But in fact, a lot of these spaces haven't been very welcoming to a lot of different people from different demographics. Um, So we should actually be leaning on like how to build some sort of solidarity in these spaces, regardless of the background of expertise or demographic or et cetera. Um, And just trying to figure out ways that we can try to have a fruitful conversation that leads to something that otherwise you couldn't have if there was just one homogenous group of people. Totally. That's a really important thing that we should all recognize. And then often I think like gets overlooked um, Mm -hmm. because it's like on individual basis. Um, Mm -hmm. um, On a similar, not similar note, but like um, as we were describing, you have a very like uh, broad practice and one that's like hard to define. Um, But could you attempt to maybe describe your practice in like one or two sentences? Yeah, I mean, I struggle with this. Let's see. Let's see how good this this comes out. Um, I think that technology is ultimately a tool. So regardless of the fidelity of that technology, I'm really trying to develop models and tools for people to use. Okay. Not objectively. It's always grounded right. in a very subjective experience. And I bring my own biases to all of these projects. But I do think whether that's like a print-on-demand tool that I made with my friend Cab Braskowski of Arena, or whether it's like a resource library, all of these things are meant to be used um, and kind of expanded upon and commented uh, upon. Okay. Um, so I like this kind of feedback. I, I oftentimes don't really release projects into the world that people just look at and move on from. It's, it's very much meant to be used. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, continuing that a bit. So what we're really curious about actually in terms of like how your career has evolved from, as you mentioned, like very traditional design studios, like two by four and the MoMA in-house studio, and then now academia where you're lecturing and you're giving talks and you're teaching, and then also the archives you've worked on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think what we're most curious about is like how you have been able to sort of talk to yourself and like guide your motivations. Like it's okay for me to make this transition now um, is, or is it like, I have this goal that I'm going after and then trying to find the different spaces where that goal is going to meet, you know, where the situations are going to meet your goal. Um, huh. Um, I am like a very like type a planner person. So I tend <laughs> to have like some goal in mind, five, 10 year plan, et cetera. But I really just see this as scaffolding to guide my like current decisions. And along the way, then that guidepost shifts because I'm exposed to new people, to new organizations, to new models, et cetera. Um, so I feel like I've always been fairly intentional about what I'm working on, but also very open to new opportunities and how that shifts. So when I first went into two by four, I was like really excited. When I first went into California College of the Arts, like same kind of motivation. And then after those experiences, then as you learn new things, you're like, well, I kind of want to pivot. I like this in this part of this program, but not X, Y, and Z. So I want to then try to tackle those things that aren't quite working. Um, so I feel like it just kind of builds in that way. But now, as you're saying, I found myself in this world where I don't really see a lot of other models for for right, practices right. like mine, but You've I think that's okay. become the model, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> it works for me, yeah, yeah. But I'm curious to see what other people develop as well. Yeah, um, I'm actually also curious about those emotional ties to like, what are maybe some emotional signals for you where it's like, oh, like it's time for me to move on or like this situation is great and I'm getting energy from on this level, but like these on, on another level, like I'm not getting the nourishment that I need. So I need to change the situation. Mm -hmm. um, I think it comes down to boredom. I get mm. Like I need a lot of stimulation. So I have a hard time like working on one thing. I mean, I can't even say that because the cyber feminism index is like three years going at this point. Um, but typically like I tend to work quickly and iteratively and I like meeting new people and working on new projects. So I think for me, the sense of complacency has always filled me with like a sort of agitation. And that for me is a good signal to move on to something else or to just change what I'm doing in some way. Hmm. Is it, uh, yeah, the word complacency for me is like, so I don't, I hate using words that people use all the time, but like triggering <laughs> because yeah, I, it's I'm like, <laughs> no, I mean, not in that, not that's, a, that's why I didn't want to use the word, but it's like a little intense, but like, you know, the, I, this idea of complacency is so, is so, yeah. Like the idea that you shouldn't feel like comfortable <laughs> is well, like so this weird and, but I don't think that that's really what it means, but that's kind of how I was raised Yeah, to yeah. Like, mm -hmm. like ignore, like if you're feeling like calm and collected and like you don't need to like run to the next thing, then, then you're not doing something right, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think this is a great point to clarify. I think there's a difference between like complacency and comfort. Mm -hmm. Like I am a big comfort seeker. Right. Like I took a full time job for a reason. Like I like yeah. having a schedule. I like having financial stability. I like having a group of people that I'm working with often. Um, I think complacency comes in when you feel like you're not being challenged. And yeah. I think you're definitely able to challenge and grow while feeling comfort. For yeah. me, complacency is when not only are you comfortable, you're also not learning anything. Um, so I think that's the big distinction there. Welcome back been a while. 
You have had some time to breathe, to think, to recuperate, to take life in and explore. Yet you wonder, what if your creativity doesn't return with you when you sit back in the studio chair? What if your insights come slower than usual? What if you can't be the designer you always dreamt of? Fear consumes you as you struggle with adapting back to this new pace. The slow but intense click of the mouse, the heavy clacking of the keys, the slack alerts, the bubbling email notifications. And though it's a familiar rhythm, it's hard to tap back into that flow that once came so naturally. You wonder about your ability to focus and thrive through this cacophony. But you have been here before, and you will return here again, many times. Life is long and short at the same time. There's no need to worry about what ifs. You have creativity within you, and your passion will discover new ideas that excite you, if you let it. Take a look inside, and at all the inspiration around you. Don't ask what if, ask what next. simulation but like that's been a project that's been long going um, specifically i think we want to talk about like staying focused on something long running like that and also just like checking your like checking to make sure you're still engaged and like being like staying the course and like have mental yeah. clarity for like why you're doing um such and such project right yeah i mean i feel like even if it's been going on for a long time I've been pretty quick to, or not quick, but I've been pretty open about publishing things in progress through its various iterations. So we're currently working on the fourth iteration. The first was this like open source, open access spreadsheet. The second was a draft catalog that was just print on demand. And then the website came out with Rhizome, a new museum um, with my collaborators, Angeline Meitzler. We also had some support from Cab Roskowski, who I've mentioned, and Janine Rosen. Um, and then now we're working on like the quote unquote official manuscript, right? For inventory process publishing uh, this book, which is set to come out next fall. So even if it's the same body of content, let's say, there's been so many different faces and like applications that it's felt like a lot of small projects, actually. Um, and I feel like the simulation has come from working with people. I have a very hard time working on things by myself. Like, I need to have a dialogue about things, and I prefer collaboration. Um, but also, like, the learning curve of, like, what's the best database to use for this thing? Or, like, what kind of printing presses don't have a paper shortage right now? how do you apply for grants? Like I learned that grant writing is basically a full-time job. So all of these different things people don't really see and it's on, it's very much on the back end. Um, but they do feel like completely distinct projects in many ways. That sounds like a pretty good strategy too. Like instead of being overwhelmed by like, Oh, this project will never end setting like clear, like, output and guideposts for yourself it's for yourself you know um, yeah you need those like, check-ins or else it's are, it's are too they super long. clear like are there like you have like i mean we know that you like to document things typically publicly yeah. do you have like a public like timeline for all this stuff like are you just keeping like tabs on tabs on tabs on like everything you're doing like in spreadsheets and stuff I mean, I do have some pretty intense like sp spreadsheets as Gantt charts. Highly recommend for people <laughs> who are not using Gantt charts because you need to. 
because it not only doesn't map your what you're doing day by day or week by week it also gives you like the two-year picture of what's happening or else it just feels way too overwhelming um wow i've never used one oh highly recommend gantt charts especially for visual people it's kind of the way to go yeah i guess i have and i didn't really know about it what they're this is just like timelines a a certain type of timeline right Timelines that are synced with other people's. So like my Gantt chart is I'm like coordinating like 20 people's timelines all for the same project, but at different phases. Um, So you kind of know if you're behind or on track. Uh, Right, right. Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to have to do a little research about that after this. Yeah. Uh, I probably won't. As James and I have discussed many times, we've always tried to use like different like to do apps and like scheduling apps, and I like always abandon them or like never look at them. Uh, so, yeah, I'm always I'm always amazed by people who can like do that stuff. But it sounds like you have your own methods, obviously, which is another thing we were kind of interested in talking about is like, you know does the amount of information within your own research and like within like something like the cyber feminism index, like give you anxiety or overwhelm you. And like, cause there's so much there in like all of your projects and like even your website, it's like about yourself. It's like, it's just so much. Does it ever like make you feel like how much is out there about like, how much have I put out and like, how do I make sure that it's like, doing okay like I don't know oh I I go back and forth about this often um I think specifically for the cyber feminism index uh the pressure does come in because since it is public and has always been like crowdsourced and open access the responsibility of how you represent someone and how you identify someone feels really heavy And I feel like maybe with the website, it's more fungible, right? Like you can edit this pretty quickly and et cetera. Now that it's going into like a printed publication that will be sold, then I really want to make sure that people are being represented in the ways that they want to be and that they're getting the kind of credit that they deserve. Um, So this idea of like inclusion and exclusion is really difficult because it's such like a nebulous term, cyberfeminism, and such a nebulous movement. But I also think that because I'm framing it as a very subjective overview and kind of like a resource for myself that other people also tend to find helpful, it humanizes the project, right? Like all archives are a slice of a history. They're always subjective, they're always filled with biases, and they're always filled with like certain technological prejudices. So I think by foregrounding that and claiming, I personally don't think anything is objective to, maybe I won't even say it like that because this all or nothing gets dangerous. Um, (laughs) But generally, I think that it's important to understand that these things are made by people um, and there will be errors. And I think that making people know that it's like in progress and like always in the works helps you. Yeah. helps motivate you to keep it as like clean and accurate as possible. But mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, is <laughs> to follow up with the kind of re-ask the same question, like does that make you anxious that like, it's sort of like custodial like you have to kind of constantly be like tending to this garden of information yeah well so that's a great point i do think that in this generate well not even in this generation generally we've always historicized and put people on a pedestal for like that bright idea like right it's like a the single genius but i feel like we need to give more credit for the maintainers like these are the people that have allowed these histories to kind of come to us in all of their imperfections. Um, So I do think that this project, especially, it made me really respect that so much more. And yes, I do feel a lot of pressure um, in how that's maintained. I do think I'm lucky because I have like some institutional partners. So eventually like the Cyberfem Index will go into Rhizome's art base and they're like, 
in many ways kind of like a library, like a like a memory institution, quote unquote. Um, so I feel like having that kind of support alleviates some of the pressure from like me having to, we have multiple people tending to this garden. So, so that helps. Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, I keep, I want to ask these questions because I'm super interested in it. Like not to put you on the spot, but like you do kind of refer, you kind of keep like sort of, uh, what's the word like minimizing your expertise you know what I mean like or saying like I'm not an expert or like what I'm doing is not like really huh. what it should be like do you do that because I do that a lot too do you do that as a like sort of defense huh. against criti- criticism of it or do you really like like I mean I'm sure you definitely feel that yeah, way yeah. too but like do you have you thought about that? Because I, I do it all the time. Like, well, I'm not a real designer. Like, I just make weird shit. Like, nobody can <laughs> criticize me. You know, whatever. Like, um, yeah, So now we're getting into, like, the psychoanalysis portion of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me think. Is it a defense mechanism? I don't know. I guess I always attributed it to, like, wanting to give people the respect they deserve for the expertises they do have. Mm-hmm. I do think, not to minimize my own efforts and labor, this is how new disciplines form, right? Um, like interdisciplinary frameworks are born from like understanding the methods of different disciplines and trying to merge them. So I feel like yeah. I am doing that in my own way. Um, but per- per- perhaps because there's like no name attached to it, as we've also discussed, that's why I'm kind of using these like prefaces and disclaimers yeah yeah I mean I think the disclaimers are super generous too like I I feel the same way you do in terms of like you know not wanting to kind of take a label that I don't feel like adequately like you know to say that I'm like a pianist when I play like a few notes on a synthesizer every once in a while you know what I mean like yeah yeah yeah. that that's sort of like or I I don't consider myself a musician and even though I have like made music so Right. I don't know. I, I I find that to be really interesting just in terms of my own uh, way of looking yeah. at things. But I think like it's always interesting on the outside looking in because like you're I've never met you before, but like I know people who know you and, you know, it's like you've come up in conversation before just because like we're in a small group, like mm-hmm. a small network of people. But like everything that I have seen would not make me think that you would be like very uh bashful or like uh not maybe that's not the right word but like I was like kind of like thinking of it more as like okay like very serious very uh kind of like organized and like super rigorous and like you probably like would never question the rigor like or question the like level of expertise of what you're doing because it does look to be so um refined and like Mm -hmm. kind of polished so it is interesting to kind of see behind that a bit uh yeah I don't know James maybe I'm going off on the tangent but perhaps you (laughs) you can make sense of what I'm trying to well actually I think what I want to get into in terms of this response and this question is like the the thing that I observe is like self-effacingness or self or humility like these kinds of uh, expressions of humility come from a lot of different sources. And I, mm-hmm. I know, like, I feel the same. Um, but I think, Mindy, what was really interesting hearing you say about interdisciplinary work and, like, how, how new disciplines gets formed, I think it sounded like there's a really interesting mix of, like, it takes a certain amount of bravery to, like, admit that, like, you're not an expert, but also yeah. still engage with other experts. Um mm. But I think actually what I'm more curious about is that being in that position, like how do you sort of manage yourself in the that level of respect in relationships? Like I'm I don't know, but I'm curious. Will you accept right, right. my curiosity? That kind of like dynamic and um, Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, so this kind of reminds at the beginning of each class, we always have a group agreement. This is something I learned from the School for Poetic Computation. So a group agreement is basically like, rather than giving someone a code of conduct, as a group, you determine what the moral alignment of the entire class for the duration of the semester will be. 
And this is because value alignment is a misleading term because people, or sorry, ethics is a misleading term because people have a different definition of what's what's ethical. Mm-hmm. So I think in the same way, this like humility question or like wanting to engage with people from different fields, it's really this. It's just an alignment of like language and taxonomy mm-hmm. um, and trying to determine like, I come from these spaces, you come from that, like what's the overlap and like how can we actually communicate effectively despite those things or rather like as a benefit of those things. I feel like this is where like those frictions I think are really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess I don't mean to sound bashful. Like I do when I'm working, I don't question my methods. Mm-hmm. I only start to question this when people ask me about it. And then I'm like, you're on a podcast about emotions behind. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Why um, would you question anything during this podcast? Yeah. And we're asking you very direct, blunt questions about it. No, I appreciate doing. it. It's it's good to think about. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, and again, like, not like, there's no intention to like, uh, like, push you off balance. I'm like, genuinely curious, because I do. I, no, I, no. I feel like, uh, you know, the work is like very peerless and sort of like, kind of like, like going into a library or something like that, where it's just like, there's a lot of books here. Like, probably not going to be able to read them all. Like, like they're they're books. Like, you know, it's like that kind of, like, grand sort of stature, which I think is, like, really incredible to build. And then, like, it is interesting to talk to somebody who's, like, kind of down to earth and, like, low-key about, like, this sort of massive uh, body of work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, like, I don't know. I always go back to music. I, you know, uh, one O tricks point never like Dan. Yeah. He he's a data archivist, and I always think of that. That's he he was trained as a data ar- archivist. I always think of that's really interesting because basically what he's doing is like taking data, like sound, and like fucking it up. So it's like yeah. deconstructing like the archive of sound or whatever. I feel like maybe that's huh. the part where I'm like you know, in your work, since it is so research based and so kind of built around content and like doing justice to content, mm-hmm. um, there isn't like really that like postmodern sort of like, well, I'm just going to like screw it all up now <laughs> angle to it, uh, which I think is like very common now for people to do. Mm-hmm. It's just to sort of be like, well, I'm, I'm doing this like ironically, or I'm doing this as like a critique on doing this. Uh, it feels very earnest in that way, I think. And I think yeah. that's where, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know where I'm going with this. Again, well, I might need I, James' help. But... Yeah. <laughs> or I yours. guess what I think what <laughs> Drew's trying to get at is like, um, because the presentation of your work and the need for, um, for, for like stewardship or like, not stewardship, but like um, preservation is involved in a lot of that work. Um, we're kind of curious, like, where do the emotional expression and the expressive elements of this work come from? Um, mm-hmm. And that's something I think we'd, we'd like to hear from you because it, it is probably oft, not, often not seen directly. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's probably definitely felt. Like, I can definitely feel it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do think it's interesting because I feel like because I'm – my formal expressions aren't as like loud or experimental as some of my peers. It's often seen as uh, neutral or something, but I actually think that's a misread uh, because I think that a lot of the decisions that come from the content that shape the form, the form almost develops itself, which I think is really interesting. Like, not just trying to use the browser the way it's used, using a lot of these default systems, but then making them feel unusual. Like these are things that I'm quite excited by and like trying to draw attention to. Um, I think, were you asking more about like the emotion behind like the, the preservationist impulse? I, don't know. I think I was actually just in general, like what are the what are the emotions that motivate the work, but also what are the things that you want to express through the work? Like, is it a sense of neutrality or is it a sense of quiet? Is it a sense of Mm. um, kind of 
calm by presenting things in their pure form or yeah, also yeah, yeah I'm, i definitely like to also get into that default uh, systems um, yeah yeah um i think that one of the emotions motivating the work or at least the sharing of the work is excitement like mm-hmm. a lot of these things i'm discovering for the first time and mm-hmm. i'm like these things are amazing like why aren't they more well known or maybe they're well known for one community but not my community So in that way, it's just like, look at all these things that we can benefit from learning from or responding Mm. to. Um, So I think that is like a definitely an impulse. Um, I think that once it's out there, then a lot of the feeling is trying to just create prompts for this kind of dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. Like once you're releasing a library, a very, very specific library, it's not actually neutral, right? It's a very tight curatorial framing of a specific point in history mm-hmm. in contrast to what we've learned. So in this case, it's like a revisionist history of the internet, like a turn away from the grandfathers who created the architecture and protocol and towards more of like the online radicalism or like activism that a lot of these marginalized groups were doing. So maybe another motivating thing is not only excitement, but kind of frustration. Like, why haven't we heard Mm -hmm. any of these things? Um, So I think that kind of pairing is kind of ripe for a lot of the things that we're actually seeing coming out right now. Mm -hmm. Like even Solange just released a library of like uh, black authors that are in the public domain. I think it's like Sam. And on her label. So this is like in the air right now, which I think is quite nice. Yeah. Yeah. To follow up on that, like, this is a tough question, but like, who is your primary audience? Mm -hmm. And how do you hope that they engage with your work? Yeah, I think it varies per project. Again, because I'm kind of, my friends are kind of like constellations. Um, Mm -hmm. But for like, maybe the cyber feminism index, maybe it touches on three different groups. The first is obviously very pedagogical. It feels like a curriculum development tool. The second is all of my friends who are in creative code, like artists who are using technologies. Mm -hmm. And lastly, and always, it's graphic designers. Like these web artifacts from the 90s are just cool images that even if you don't know the context of them, are like nice things to respond to formally. yeah, so I think for that, it's all—it's always kind of like a mix of groups. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting to hear. And like, yeah, that's kind of exciting to think about, like, in terms of like, well, so many different people might be interested in this for different reasons, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, there does seem to be like a slight sense of humor in your work. I hope so. <laughs> um, but like, that dead, is it like the deadpan sort of neutral quality supposed to be sort of funny or lighthearted? Like I know obviously there's there's certain projects that are, but even like the web the way your website is structured to me is like a little funny. Yeah. I don't know if it's like like is that intentional and like can you elaborate a bit on like how you view like these default sort of ways of presenting information? Yeah, um, I think humor is a very important part of life. And whether it's obvious or not, I think it's like also a great coping mechanism that people employ, whether for something that's like devastating or for something that's really like formal, like humor is like a good way to kind of bring people in. It's funny that you mention it, though, because I feel like some people don't notice it, um, which is fine. Maybe because everyone has different senses of humor. Um, But I like like when it's kind of under the hood, right? Like you kind of go to this, it feels austere, but actually it's like quite playful. Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe that's how I also present myself to the world too. Um, Right. um, So yeah, it's not something I've really examined, but I'm glad that you're bringing it up because it's nice to hear that people can see it. Well, yeah, that's kind of because I have always felt like hmm, I use like a lot of analogies, but it's sort of like in the way that I think like Radiohead is funny, like 
it's like the most like kind of intense stuff but it's like it's still funny um yeah it's like you have to really understand a lot of things i feel like to get that there's humor (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure that I do understand those things, but I feel like I kind of see what's going on, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, going back to our earlier point, like, I do not necessarily like irony. So I prefer this kind other kind of humor that feels more like self-referential or like self-aware. Like you're almost poking fun at yourself or like the seriousness with, with which people perceive you. Mm-hmm. When in fact, like we're doing our best, but we're not, we're graphic designers, you know, like I think this, this kind of distinction is important to, to recognize. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really interesting. Like, I just wanted to hear you talk about it a bit and I'm excited that you feel like it's not something people talk about a lot. Cause like, I want to, yeah. yeah, I want to, I, if there is anything else you want to say about it, like you feel free, but like James, if you want to ask some other well, questions. I think. I mean, there's definitely humor that I see, and there's also, like, a humor and kind of, like, hey, like, I'm using basic tools. Like, I'm using basic HTML, but I'm going to do it in a way that is well-crafted and, um, yeah. you know, considered. And But at the end of the day, I'm still using Times New Roman in, like, my default, you know, uh, and my, my, my style sheet is, like, default fonts. Um but for me, actually, and as you mentioned, Mindy, like there are different reads and misreads of the work. But for me, what I gain out of it is like there's a intentional sense of intimacy by choosing the default, which is in some ways ironic because, but I think the intimacy comes from the accessibility. Yeah. Um, and then there's also a sense of like naivete in some ways, like like i wouldn't go so far as purity because i think that's kind of putting it on a pedestal in some ways but like kind of like preserving that like first html tutorial that you do it's like cool i can put something on a web page it says hi hello world it's like it's live like there's something about that like constant excitement from the first time you encounter these types of tools um so I'm, i'm i'm curious like how much of that is behind the the motivation to use these default systems. Yeah, I mean, like, even now, when I push a website online, I'm like, wow, it's so cool that that worked. Like, this thing is totally (laughs) public now. Like, in some ways, online publishing still feels quite magical. And it is kind of like this childlike sense of wonder, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I also think from, like, a more strategic side or a preservationist side, because we're using the backbones of the internet, these websites will stay online longer. You don't have to deal with like third party JavaScript libraries going defunct or not being maintained. Um, Mm. And also it's about drawing attention to the histories of what appears default because all of the default settings were designed. Um, So Arial in Cyberfem Index is one of the few system fonts co-designed by a woman. Patricia Saunders for IBM in the early 80s. So like, it's just about me trying to figure out, okay, what is default? What made it default? And how can we draw attention to like the good parts of it and the bad parts of it? Um, Mm. Yeah, there's like a few different motivations there. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that about Ariel. That's really awesome. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also that corrects the like uh, misreading of the default being like, um, I, I think it is radical in its way, but um, not being designed like mm-hmm. that's an right. often easy yeah. criticism of like that kind of gesture. It's like, oh, like their point is to make it not designed, but like everything yeah. is designed. Well, it's like it's like the way that like certain people talk about like noise music or like minimalism yeah. as like, oh, he's just playing like one note over and over again. It's like, well, yeah. That's not, that's what he's physically doing or what this musician's doing, but like that's not the intention behind it. It's like the intention is like to to create an emotion or a resonance with some mm-hmm. audience or like to kind of. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like you see, it's like watching a you know an animation where like you can see like the kind of like residue of like the mm-hmm. frames or something where it's like that 
is better than seeing like CGI that like looks real, like this kind of uh, you know, uncanny shit where it's like. Mm. So I don't care how that was made, really, because it's just like not interesting to me anymore. <laughs> like, I mean, it's really just about context. Yeah. Right. Like when things happen in different periods and responding to different things, they even if it's the exact same thing, it changes. So I think it's about the intention and the context. Um, mm. And humor comes from this and like, yeah, all these things, preservation, strategy, knowledge, whatever. hearing from the design community call us at 202-507-9158 please share your story with us after the tone we'll do our best to respond on our podcast please leave a name or alias design role and location thank you for your call like to wrap up the show by coming up with a mantra and um, <laughs> I think I have one that's really simple but I think poignant to the conversation and it's just uh, stay excited um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great one absolutely yeah that's good I was also thinking stay curious because the curiosity uh, yeah. quote earlier was really good but right. I think excited might be better because what do you think? I mean, it, I feel like both of these are, they're basically motivators. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, what are things you're using to motivate yourself? Um, right. For me, it's those two, curiosity and um, uh, excitement. But also, like, comfort's also motivating. I think people yeah. are just trying to develop their own, develop de- developing their own framework, excuse me. <laughs> what do you think is a good way to stay curious? and stay excited i think that's exposure to new things Mm. like we just need more variables in our life Mm. um yeah i think one thing that also that i'm getting from this conversation mindy is um that exposure to new things i think also requires a lot of vulnerability on on your part so Mm -hmm. i mean i think that's where i mentioned i think earlier about like some sense of bravery to go into yeah. spaces where you're not comfortable and you're not exposed uh, what you're yeah you're not exposed to um mm. yeah, yeah, yeah i appreciate that thank yeah, you that, i agree too it's like i feel like what i'm learning too from this conversation with you is that like there's sort of like a comfort in discomfort or like being mm-hmm. uncomfortable is like part of the interesting part of your practice too to a degree yeah. it's like how can i make a space in this space where I don't necessarily feel comfortable and like how can I contribute to it in a new way that somebody else might not totally thought of and also it's generous it's not just about it's contributing it's not just about like how do I make myself visible in this space it's like how do I make something visible in this space absolutely which is cool Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah like agree with the bravery thing again badass (laughs) yeah. <laughs> not that that um, word, i feel like that word's come out of fallen out of favor though it's like gotten too yeah but I, it's I, gotten I like it um but thanks so thanks a ton for spending time with us it's been a very enriching conversation um, thanks for the invitation i appreciate like the thoughtful feedback and like the analysis of what i'm doing so i think i should be <laughs> examining that more myself yeah. just don't don't have an existential crisis because of us. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.